Hi everyone, Finding Fair Health is back with a whole load of new and exciting episodes. In this episode, Jess Drinkwater and Martin Rathfelder bring their experience of patient participation in research to a fascinating discussion. Evidence tells us that supporting patients to actually be part of and have a voice in their own care improves health outcomes. In this episode, Jess and Martin give us their insights from their years of experience in research and setting up and being part of patient participation groups. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Finding Fair Health podcast. I've got a really exciting episode today. So we've got Martin Rathfelder and Jess Drinkwater. Martin is a member of the public who is involved in patient participation, has years and years of experience, has been chair of his patient participation group and um, really, really looking forward to speaking to him today. Jess Drinkwater is a GP in Bradford, um, but also um, has been doing lots and lots of research around patient participation and is currently a GP clinical lecturer at the University of Manchester. Welcome both of you to the Finding Fair Health podcast. Um, really great to have you here. Lovely to be here. I really wanted to just check how, check in and see how you both are. Jess, I know GPs are under a lot of pressure at the moment. Um, how are you doing? Uh, I am doing okay. You have to think about it, don't you? I, I've had a really lovely day today um, with medical students. I've had some really exciting uh, cases that they've seen. Um, uh, we've seen some face-to-face patients so that's fun and that's always lovely seeing patients face-to-face brilliant all right that sounds great and martin how are you doing i'm fine i'm still breathing i'm i should tell you this i i am patient number five in the world for the new generation third vaccine oh wow I'm i'm on a clinical trial which is supposed to be proof against everything so I, oh, wow. I may be about to be tested. Oh, that's very exciting. Thank you for being patient number five. That's great. Yeah, it's the first clinical trial I've ever managed to join. Very, it's amazingly useful, especially now with such negative news potentially coming around. Let's be positive. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so what I really wanted to talk to you both about today is a lot of the stuff that Jess has been researching and what you've been involved with with Jess Martin is around patient and public participation. Um, this can sometimes feel like quite a challenging thing for, for health professionals generally because a lot of people just don't really know where to start. It can feel like a really, really tricky um, kind of going around in circles mission to try and improve patient um, involvement um, while also trying to keep up a service that primary care is um, working so hard to do, particularly at the moment. Jess, what makes you so interested in patient participation? I got interested in patient participation and I was on my elective in India as a medical student and there um, I was working in rural India in primary care and they had a problem with uh, governance of primary care and uh, getting GPs to actually who were supposed to work in rural centres to actually turn up um, and so they had set up uh, sort of patient advisory groups um, to oversee the rural clinics um, and sort of help them to give them the power to um, demand that the GPs actually turn up on the day and that the drugs were actually given out. Um, And uh, that 
um, I was really interested in it. I was really interested in how it worked, um, how it linked general practice to the community, um, how it was living in those communities and understanding about how that affected uh, people's lives and people's health. And then I came back to the UK and had to do uh, my GP training and had to do a service improvement project and didn't want to do something boring um, and uh, was looking around for things and came across this file uh, that said patient participation and I looked at it and there was money attached to it. So the practice were really keen for me to do it. Uh, but they were really, really scared about it. And I remember one of the GPs saying, don't give them tea because we'll never get rid of them, um, but they can have water. <laughs> so, uh, and we set it up and, and the practice were really supportive of it after that. Um, and uh, we had a really good time and we set up a public health day with the patients there, but it was kind of really unclear what we were aiming to be doing, how we should be doing it, who we should invite how you could encourage anyone. And I thought there must be guidance on it. And I looked around and there was no guidance and there was partly no guidance because it, everyone wanted it to be flexible and everyone had a different definition of what it should be. And uh, so I thought that we needed some research to look at how you could do it more meaningfully and to see whether it is actually a waste of time uh, and that we shouldn't be putting effort into it or whether actually it benefits our practices and can be really helpful. Um, uh, and so that's what I've been doing in our PhD, our PhD, my PhD, but Martin's been helping, technically his as well. So hey, Martin, what about you? What's got you inter interested in participation? Well, the NHS has had gestures in the way of accountability and democracy since uh, 1974, I think. Um, and they've been more or less effective or ineffective and I've joined all of them that I can, really. Um, and so I joined my local patient participation group for my surgery. And at that point, we had GPs who were quite keen on it. So I went along about every three months. And it was entirely run by the practice manager who decided what we were going to talk about and how we were going to talk about it. And sometimes there was a GP who came along and disrupted proceedings. And... Mostly it was them moaning about the outside world, you know, what the CCG had or hadn't done to them or what problems there were, or there wasn't really very much listening to what the patients might want. It's quite hard for patients to relate. Firstly, most people have no idea how, what a practice is, I mean, legally, to start with. They don't know that most GPs are self-employed contractors. They think they're NHS employees. Um, they don't know anything about the business side of running a practice. Um, and they're certainly not told anything about that at a PPG, at least none I've ever heard of. Yeah, that's, and that's really interesting insight from you, Martin. There's a, not much background given to you. And by a PPG, we mean a patient participation group. Yes. Um, there was a time there was a time when all the practices had them because they were paid a pound per patient to have them so they all had them and then the pound was taken away and they were told they were to continue to have them without any money and without any sort of oversight nobody really inquired whether it really happened or monitored it in any way so some are continuing and some aren't as far as i can see technically 
the money got rolled into the um, global sum of the contract. Yeah. Um, uh, so some people argue that the money is still there to run PPGs, but most GPs I know would say that that global it was rolled into this global sum at a time when GP practices were really really struggling financially, and that was to support all activity, not just a PPG. Um, also, when it was paid for a pound a patient, um, there were very few practices who used that money on the PPG. Um, and I think um, now it is a contractual requirement. You have to tick a box, but it is literally a tick box. And CQC come round and, sorry, Care Quality Commission, um, normally ask to speak to a member of your PPG to check it's up and running. Um, but that can be quite easily um, dealt with. My practice, in the waiting room, they have one of these display things which, with messages for the patients. And it says, we are going to have a patient participation group. Well, they've had that thing running around for three years now and they've not had a meeting. So maybe that's just for the benefit of the CQC. So that's really interesting. Um, Martin and Jess, so there's almost a feeling that it should be there, perhaps, but in a lot of places it isn't happening. Um, why do you think that might be the case? Most doctors think it's either a waste of time or a threat, or both, is my impression. And Jess, what do you think? I think it's not a priority. It's not seen as a priority by clinicians. Um, a lot of PPGs are delegated to practice managers. Um, a lot of practice man when we've done we had a, I hadn't worked with a medical student who did some focus groups with practice managers and asked practice managers what are patient participation groups for and they said and practice managers say it's not a complaints forum so it's defined as a negative um, uh, by Ms. that's because a lot of practice managers don't have any communication skills training apart from dealing with complaints a lot of practice managers don't have um, that much patient contact and a lot of time talking to patients um, and I think um, uh, some of them really like the PPG therefore because it's an opportunity to speak to patients and find out what patients want and some practice managers also use that as power within the practice to be able to challenge GPs and say this is what the patients want. Um, so some PPGs are really, really active and uh, are run by patients. Um, we should say so that there are some really positive examples of patient participation groups out there. Um, uh, but I think the majority, it was seen as something fostered on them, that it isn't a priority, that it was rolled out nationally without very much thought about how pra whether practices have the skills to do it and the capacity to do it. Um, and then it's a relationship thing and it takes time and it takes effort and that's really hard. And the national thing was not really accompanied by much in the way of telling you what how it ought to work or what, what one would be. The first PPGs were set up in 1970, but by uh, practices where people were really interested and thought that it had a role and that it would bring them closer to their community and understand their community and understand patient experience and so we're really active about it and and it's the thing about practice culture as well so it links to practice culture and 
if your whole practice is that way inclined and you're working really well together as a team and you've all got time and space and capacity to think about it, then it works really, really well. So there's lots of positives and it sounds like some negatives. Um, So Martin, you're mentioning things like a waste of time, it being a threat and things like that. I think it might be useful at this point just to kind of think about what in your, both of your minds are patient participation groups in an ideal world trying to achieve? (laughs) That's a hard question. Hmm. (laughs) Well, I suppose partly a bit of mutual understanding. You know, if a few more patients have some idea what you know, what practices were about and what they could and couldn't do, that wouldn't be a bad thing. Yeah, I, I would actually have said the same. I would probably wouldn't have called it mutual understanding, but I think I would have said to understand the lives of patients better. So, you know, we, I, I don't live in the area where I am working. Um, uh, you know, I've got teenage mums. I don't know what their life is like. I don't know particularly how they afford childcare or manage childcare, or how they're supposed to carry on at school. I don't know what it's like to live on £159 a month um, and pay for my dog food, as well as electricity and food. And I don't know what it's like to book an appointment in my practice. And I don't know how difficult that is. I know what it's like for me as a patient to book an appointment in my practice, and I have the same grumbles as my patients. And so ideally, you know, I hope, you know, if, if I find it rubbish to book an appointment as a patient, maybe we should believe some of our patients when they're saying it's rubbish to book an appointment. Mm-hmm. But yeah, some of that stuff we can't do anything about. So I think that's then it becomes really difficult to go to a group of people without any solutions. Yes, one of the issues for a practice, they think people would come and demand longer appointments, more frequent, easier access, and I clearly can't have them all at once. The other problem, of course, is the sort of people Jess is talking about that she doesn't understand. They're not mostly the people on the PPG, who tend to be older, better educated and better off than patients in general. Yeah, so that's an interesting point, Martin. So how much does a PPG have to be representative of the community that of patients that it um, well, uh, it, nice. it, well, it's impossible, you know, you, unless you have a huge thing, it couldn't really be representative. The best you can have is people who understand the local community a bit better than the practice might. Yeah, and I, th- I think we also we get into a quagmire about patient experience as well, and to understand what someone else's experience is like. And really, the only person that can fully understand someone's experience is that person. It's very hard to represent someone else's experience. Um, uh, But actually, what I think we should think about more is the other knowledge that patients bring. So, you know, they know about local community groups um, that, you know, some people start talking about asset based community development and they know about local assets. Um, uh, They know what the local good schools are and the bad schools are and the places you wouldn't want to hang out. Um, uh, they potentially know where, you know, about fitness things um, uh, that, you know, I just don't know about. They also know about the problem with the local bus service um, uh, or the, the fact that, you know, you, my local area, sometimes taxis refuse to go in after six o'clock at night. So um, actually, people really can't come to out-of-hours appointments because they can't get taxis because no taxi will go in to their own. Or maybe 
Well, uh, and maybe the more practical thing is, it, <clears throat> as I do with other bits of the health service, it's an outside view of your practice. If you're inside it, you can't see it the way you can see it from the outside. Yeah, I really like that way of looking at it, Martin. It's nice, nice way of thinking about it. And actually, from a health inequalities point of view, as, as you say, Jess, there's lots of um, talk about sort of asset-based community development, that sort of thing, and um, working with our communities. And actually, um, this seems like an amazing opportunity to be able to do that. I also think things like um, thinking about trauma-informed care, how we make access to general practice is not just about how many appointments available it's about how easy it is to physically book an appointment so some of the complaints about the doors being shut in covid have been that people who would have come and booked an appointment face to face haven't been able to do that they've had to go online to book a telephone appointment and it's not so much that they mind having the telephone appointment it's they mind the difference in the booking process you know um Phil would always say um, to one of our group members about the fact that most reception desks still aren't at the right height for wheelchair users. So wheelchair users have to look up. Um, and that immediately, if you've had experienced trauma in your life, that's you know putting you off on the wrong on the wrong foot. It's saying there is a power hierarchy here and mm -hmm. you know we're better and um, we don't really care about you. So I think sometimes PPGs are thought of as the answer to health inequalities and community development. And I don't necessarily think that the people who join PPGs have that right knowledge that maybe I would, and the people as Martin rightly said that, you know, I was talking about earlier are unlikely to join PPGs and have some of that community knowledge. Um, but actually I think the people who do join PPGs could be holding us to account more about those processes around the building and around the surgery and around the organisation. There was a time when, you know, the GP lived in his, above his surgery and knew everybody and lived in the vicinity, but that's quite a long time ago now. There are not many of them left, are there? It's interesting, Jess, you, um, you mentioned a bit about the power dynamic between the doctor and patient. Um, Martin, have you felt that in a lot of the groups that you've been, is that there's a kind of public... Um, public health professional power dynamic you mean do i have to touch my forehead when i see jess <laughs> um, there is but you can get around it i mean i've been around this long enough that you know i know know quite a lot of doctors in a reasonably personal way and i have come to realize that most of them are almost human <laughs> i think the difficulty is if you've if you've not really met a doctor outside of a surgery before People don't know what to make of them. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and, that, and, and, you know, that's something that we don't really talk about, like actually just going out into the public and being mm. in, in, in community spaces is an opportunity to be human and be seen to be human. Yeah, things like eating. You know, even doctors have to eat. No, we don't eat. We don't have lunch breaks. <laughs> but I know what you're saying so it's the power of con connection isn't it and the power of being able to kind of meet together on equal terms mm. um which um yeah I think is really important uh, and it was quite interesting was it you who was no it was Jess who was saying we mustn't give the patients tea because that would encourage them to think that they're you know on the level with us we can all drink tea no no give them water yeah we'll drink the tea 
And it's interesting you say food because I think food is a really good thing to bring people together, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a marker that we're all human beings. It is. Jess, I'm interested because you're, you're working in an area of deprivation in Bradford and um, what's different about participation, particularly in an area of deprivation, do you think? Um, so uh, I think one of the really interesting things about where I work in Bradford is that, um, you know, there's been really bad town planning over the years and they've put a big, great ring road right through the middle of the community. So um, we're kind of one side of it and the majority of our patients are the other side of it in the six lane carriageway, um, which I think... Um, you know really affects how you link up to community so there are big there are big structural things about how um areas of deprivation and their communities are structured and the links that they have and the resources that they have there's not a huge amount there's there's some very run down um public space um but it doesn't really look inviting because it's been left to sort of um wither a bit um the um Interestingly, one of my patient participation group members told me about um, all the money that they got, got from uh, Margaret Thatcher and, and um, uh, to do community regeneration in the 90s, um, and then that disappeared. So there are, you know, there's one scheme after another scheme that sort of come and go, and that affects trust, and that affects trust, and it affects hope, um, and. That, and that affects how much people are prepared to put effort into um, working with you. And if, if you're seen as kind of another group that are gonna come and take something away or um, <clears throat> use you in some way to, for political means or, um, uh, and like, although the, I, I, I'm more aware of the power dynamics than uh, Martin is, I think. And, and you know uh, we're middle class and um, highly educated as um, professionals, and you know there's a national, um, you know there has been a big national move about anti-professionalism and all the culture wars and things like that. And um, so I think uh, getting people to trust you and then them having the confidence in themselves to um, challenge you and to um, use the sort of and recognize and use the sort of uh resources that they have um is really really hard and they do they are quite deferential and they do come along and say yes doctor and no doctor and um yeah i think one of the ways to combat that is by getting patients to work together more um so what you tend to find in a lot of patient participation groups is that patients are invited as individuals to the group by the practice and then the practice spend a lot of time talking at them and there's no space for the patients to get to know each other and if they start getting to know each other then they start having solidarity with each other and they start having a bit more of a voice and they can say one person can say should we do this but i'd quite like a buddy to come along with me and then it's more likely to happen um, and that doesn't that potentially needs staff time um but it's it doesn't necessarily need way more staff time it's just about what the staff are doing when they're there and not just presenting or asking people for feedback but sort of saying let's have a cup of tea let's have some food let's you know get a curry um uh, and and let's have a chat and just be there. So I, 
um, Digistur work for the CCG as well across Bradford, um, which is, has a very, uh, lots of different populations across it. So I got to know quite a lot of different patient participation groups. Um, uh, and a lot of the more patient participation groups in more wealthy areas are definitely patient run. Um, uh, so they um, are able to sort of self-organize and have often have a chair and a secretary are often retired professional members who are used to board meetings or sort of the meetings that we would be used to as GPs. Um, uh, and so um, they're able to have minutes um, and uh, a chair and a secretary and sort of and different people who have different skills and they come together and they have a discussion and they um, maybe have something presented at them, but they ask questions about it. Um, and uh, that's kind of the sort of one model of patient participation groups. And it's great where you can have that. But in my current patient participation group, when I've asked someone to be chair and I've really said, you know, this would look, this would be really good. I've said, it would be really good if someone wanted to be chair. It's not hard to chair. We would support you to chair. Um, uh, I've bullied them into asking someone to chair. I've tried absolutely everything to get them to chair. And eventually one member agreed to chair and then said, uh, and then the, his way of chairing is to say, okay, over to you, Jess. <laughs> So, um, and I've, I've had feedback from a number of patient participation group members that say that clearly I'm owning the group too much still, uh, and that I need to take a step back from that. And that, that might be true, but um, I think there is something about confidence to do that role. And also what just understanding of that role and Am I, by saying we need to have a chair, am I turning it into a meeting space that is un, that is familiar to me, but not necessarily to them? And they're used to meeting in more social situations and talking about their experiences over food, over a cup of tea. And I know we're kind of talking quite um, focused on patient participation groups, so PPGs. There's other aspects of participation that I know, um, Jess, you've been involved in I'm in Martin with the research as well so is there more to participation than just PPGs? I think we should we think we should be thinking about participation more widely mm. I think the, there are various assemblies um, and at different levels of the NHS um, but there are also much more informal things um, like um, community groups where people meet and talk about you know someone says oh I how did you find getting an appointment with your GP? And and technically they're participating and technically we as GPs aren't there to hear that. Um, I, th I think it'll be very interesting to see now we're all going to be integrated, whether that makes any difference. You know, whether primary care networks, for example, are going to have some sort of patient voice in them, any kind of accountability or democracy um, let alone the strategic, whatever they're called, are they going to have any patient person? The integrated care systems. Yes. Um, I mean, that, that, that depends locally, doesn't it? So mm -hmm. uh, I know for West Yorkshire have an assembly. Um, uh, the, you know, the NHS is quite difficult for people to understand if they're not in it. 
I think that's really interesting about the stuff around other things can, that patients can do to participate. So whether that's, as you say, a community group, an assembly, an integrated care system level, there's lots of other things that is technically participation that isn't a PPG. But I suppose this that kind of leads me on to my next question, which is where should the participation sit? Where is an ideal place within the system for it to sit? Is it is it at the local level within the community um, and not even in the GP surgery itself? Is it in the GP surgery as a PPG? Is it at a primary care network level? Is it at system level? Actually, it never should be a one-size-fits-all model. You should um, have as many opportunities to participate as possible. Um, uh, I, think, I think, you know, in an ideal world, GPs would have time to go out into the community. They'd have time to campaign. Um, they'd have time uh, to do all of those things Um, uh, in an ideal world we'd have a system where you know it linked up and there were there was participation at the practice level there's participation at the PCM level there's participation at the ICS level and at the national NHS England level Um, there have been some experiments with trying to have participatory systems that sort of a grand networks of participation. They haven't been successful at the moment, but work to be done. So it's interesting because I think that feeling potentially of, right, like, what can we do? Is a PPG enough? Where should this sit? Can sometimes feel quite overwhelming. I know, for example, at the primary care network level, the service to for health inequalities is being implemented at the moment. And I I know there's quite a few health inequality leads um, kind of thinking, right, how can we get patient participation involved here? Kind of where where would you, someone who kind of is new to this, where would you recommend they start? Yeah, because there's talk in that thing of co-design, isn't there? Yeah, um, exactly. And and I think for most GPs, co-production and co-design, like, you know, is that a whole new thing that you have to do a PhD on to learn about? (laughs) Uh, And... um, uh, and I, th- I, th- I think that is really hard. And I think um, some of the expectations around that, that, you know, patient participation will fix health inequalities is is putting a major um, sort of credibility weight on patient participation. That if it doesn't live up to that, then becomes another thing that patient participation doesn't achieve. And, and we're all knackered, <laughs> really busy. <laughs> I, I think what I've learned through the research is that, I, I'll say I have um, been taught a considerable amount of communication skills on a one-to-one basis. I think I'm quite a good, stop laughing, Martin. I think I'm quite a good communicator on a one-to-one basis. Um, what I have never been taught is how to work as part of a group uh, and how to facilitate a group and have those facilitation skills um, that ensure that I can deal with conflict when it arises within a group because conflict always arises within a group and that uh, I can make it fun and I can make sure that everyone's voice is being heard. Working with members of the public I have learned that they have way more facilitation skills than me you know there are people who work as community you know old school community developers who know how to properly chair meetings and how to bring people in and how to deal with conflict and how to challenge constructively and not let sort of um, racism and um, uh, um, all of those other things happen in meetings or to challenge it where it does happen and feel confident doing that. And so 
I, I don't, I think it's about finding those people that exist in the community, where they exist, how you find them. Um, there are some CCGs that have really great people and have really great links. There are other CCGs that most of their engagement team have comms background and will just do your defensive comms. Um, uh, you want to find someone who is an activist, who um, is capable of challenging GPs in a group setting. Um, who will challenge you but not too much well someone who can facilitate challenge of you so they're not just sitting there challenging you but will facilitate mm. the challenge of you um, by other people um, and being open to that and, and stop being defensive and don't just listen so my two pet hates when I go to patient participation groups and observe patient participation groups is GPs that are really defensive and GPs that just sit and listen because I'm here to listen and they don't engage and they don't um, participate, they are observers. That's really interesting because that must create its own dynamic in itself and kind of power play during them as well. Mm. Martin, what do you think? I think I would look to local voluntary organisations where you might find some of the people with the sort of skills and experience Jess is talking about and people who would feel that they've got some sort of status. Because I think if, if you don't, if you just think that's a doctor and I'm just a person, then that doesn't work very well. I think if you can stand up and say, I represent the Tenants Association or somebody, then you feel you've got a bit more standing and you can because it's really interesting actually thinking about that kind of trying to find skilled representatives or I know that we've talked about representation and um, Jess your point earlier about representation was really interesting about kind of everyone in kind of almost represents themselves and no one else but if we're trying to find someone who is skilled so much that we talk about around health inequalities is trying to think about how we can support our most vulnerable um I don't know I don't know whether this is right or not but perhaps those people aren't necessarily in the space at the moment to be involved in the participation I don't know is that is that right I don't know probably I mean I, I sit on a wide variety of committees in the NHS I'm in very good health I turn up at all the meetings my colleagues who are poorly miss half the meetings because they're not well and and this is hard work I mean if if you're um, you know, why would you come along to a meeting if you're knackered because um, your life is hard and um, you think that the meeting space might further alienate you or um, uh, might just be might be really difficult? Um, uh, and, and why should we be asking people whose lives are hardest to do this extra bit of work? I think we, we've had some interesting discussions about the difference between representation and being a representative and that you need people who are have the skills and time to go and talk to other people and bring those stories back and that that is uh it's not perfect but there is no perfect way of doing this but that's better than just having people who are saying this is my experience we facilitated some patient group meetings um and i facilitated um I facilitated them with uh, one of uh, her researchers, members of the public, and we went along and she has a massive background of community development work. And 
it was really interesting to me because that group of patients, they knew that I was a GP and they were very deferential to me. Um, whereas um, we, we both sat through this meeting, we had this really great meeting where there was kind of whooping and, um, and everyone with really high energy levels. Um, and at the end of it, she got hugs and I was really jealous. I didn't get any hugs. <laughs> Um, because you know she, she was an, an approachable personable human and just the fact of the title of being a doctor wasn't necessarily anything I was doing I don't think um, you shouldn't but... wander around with a stethoscope around your neck <laughs> I don't have a stethoscope around my neck so but there's a you know there's a cultural thing that you know people have and they don't realize they're doing and I think we just need to be more aware of that and we should make these meetings more friendly we should make them more sociable and we should invite people who have those skills to do that social stuff yeah. Mm -hmm. is there anything else you can think of that you would you would recommend to someone as just like a absolute no-no or an absolute definite absolute definite is just have a go and put yourself out there and I know no one in general practice has time but we do use that as an excuse for an awful lot of things that we don't do I think those are things that I would definitely do just have a try um, I think that's really empowering because I think the biggest thing I'm taking away is around it not necessarily needing to be perfect and that's okay and how important it is just to just to crack on and have a go so thank you for that. And I'm, I'm terrified every time I do it, every time I do it with a new group, every time it's, it's, it is terrifying, but you know, putting yourself out there is good for you. It, it regularly goes wrong. Don't despair. Try again. <laughs> Be really clear about why you're doing it. So what, what is your purpose and be really transparent about that to yourself as well as other people. Everyone has a different reason for doing it. Frequently, the most useful and moving on conversations that I have in any of these spaces is to just go around the group and say, why have you come today? Um, and it, everyone will surprise you and they'll all be a bit different. I think as GPs, we do talk about representation and whether people are legitimate because they're you know, too white or too middle class or too retired. Um, and I think if that's what you've got, then, you know, work with it. And, and actually a lot of those people, if they, if they, if they have time, then that's a resource and they can do some of the reaching out for you, but it's about talking to them about that. Do something. Don't just talk about how you're going to recruit people. That's an absolute killer. And ask people how it's going regularly, check in and say, how's it going? Yeah. 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 Oh, well, thank you, Jess. These are all really useful things. I'm not even going to ask you, um, what um martin um was saying about yeah people thinking ppgs are a complete waste of time i'm not even going to ask you whether you think that's the case because i know that you think they definitely aren't a waste of time and it's a good thing to do although sometimes i think everyone has a day when they think they're not yeah okay <laughs> okay well jess it's really great to hear yours and martin's thoughts about this so just before i finish it'd be really useful to hear about um your one book or resource you would recommend to someone who's interested in tackling health inequalities and potentially getting involved in participation <laughs> well i, I, I had pre-warning and i thought about this and i i would recommend the purpose of power by alicia garza is one of the women who um founded founded read the book and she'll explain why founded is the wrong word black lives matter um uh she's a really strong american black woman um uh who is actually rooted in organizing um 
which is a, an activist term for some of this community engagement stuff, community participation. Um, uh, and she talks about distributive leadership. Um, she talks about imposter syndrome. Um, uh, she talks about identity and labels. Um, she talks about you know, why inequalities exist and how we can support people to, for everyone to be a leader um, and to organize and achieve change uh, and achieve radical change. And she's done some of that. So why would you not read it? Well, um, Jess, you should be on their PR. I'm going to order that book right away. Um, thank you. And Martin. Oh, can you read that? Yeah. A Radical Practice in Liverpool. By my friend Katie Gardner. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, well worth brilliant. reading. Thank you very much for that recommendation, Martin. And if you had one magic genie wish to tackle health inequalities, what would that be, Martin? Give poor people money. Oh, my line. <laughs> well yeah i mean uh, it does worry me that the only people who are thinking about this are, are doctors you know we're in a position where if you want all kinds of help you have to go to a gp to get it even if it's nothing to do with health really that that's bonkers yes i was going to say universal basic income so you know if it, it is just nonsensical that's what we should be doing um and you know it would help with participation because then people would have time to participate and they would have time to think about these things and people would have time and space and not be overworked and overstressed and that would massively improve people's health well jess thank you um and to martin for your time talking to me today it's really really interesting and really helpful for me to explore patient participation and yeah lots to take away and think about so thank you so much thanks for listening everyone I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Further podcast episodes, modules, blog posts and more educational resources are available on the Fair Health website at www.fairhealth.org.uk. If you enjoyed the episode, please do subscribe so you're updated when we release more episodes. It's always lovely to hear from you and thank you for all the comments and feedback we've had about the podcast over the last few years. Please get in touch via Twitter at FairHealthUK or at RMSteam. We're really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.